Learning for Life at Gustavus is produced by J.J. Aiken and Matthew Dobosensky of the Gustavus Office of Marketing. Will Clark, Senior Communications Studies major and videographer at Gustavus, who also provides technical expertise to the podcast, and me, your host, Greg Castor. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Gustavus Adolphus College. Democracy is coming to the USA, proclaimed Leonard Cohen in his 1992 song, Democracy. Today, more than a few people think and have said it's on the verge of leaving, or worse, has already left. Part of a global turn against democracy in countries like Hungary, Turkey, India, Brazil, and perhaps even the United States. The present focus on democracy's fate here and internationally has made me eager to speak with my guest today, Professor Joel Johnson of the Government and International Affairs Department at Augustana University in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Joel is an interesting, provocative, and deep thinker about democracy in the U.S., whose work I have long admired and learned from. In full disclosure, I had the pleasure of being one of Joel's professors during his undergraduate years at Gustavus, where he double majored in political science and honors history, graduating Phi Beta Kappa and Summa Cum Laude in 1996. He went on to earn both his MA and PhD in political science from Harvard University, and subsequently joined the faculty at Augustana in 2003, where he currently chairs the Social Science Division and holds the Sanford Peter Schotten's Distinguished Chair of Government. Prior to holding that chair, Joel was Augustana's Stanley L. Olson Chair of Moral Values. He has also received summer research funding from the National Endowment for the Humanities and a Fulbright Senior Scholar Award for teaching and research at Marburg, Germany. In addition to teaching courses in such topics as political philosophy, theories of justice, American political thought, and politics and literature, Joel has also authored numerous articles, chapters, conference papers, op-eds, and reviews, along with a terrific book titled Beyond Practical Virtue, A Defense of Liberal Democracy Through Literature, about which we'll get into in a bit. Like his other former profs at Gustavus, I am unabashedly proud of Joel's many accomplishments, and it's my great pleasure to say welcome to the podcast, Joel. Thank you, Greg. It is an honor to be here speaking with you today, and thank you for that kind introduction. You are quite welcome. My pleasure. It's so glad we could. I know the last time we saw each other was when? Maybe two? Was it two years ago when you came yeah. with your son to Gustavus? Yeah, a couple of years ago on a campus visit. Yeah. We've, we've known each other a long... Well, we've known each other maybe... I don't know if it was since your first year at Gustavus, but early on, that's for sure. Yeah, you were my advisor from the very start. Oh, so you can take time. credit for anything that I've accomplished. <laughs> well, I'll take credit for all the good, and the, I should take credit for the bad, too. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it's, uh, it's, it's, great to, it's great to have this kind of conversation, which you and I haven't had in such a long time. Um, I've been looking forward to it. So how are things going at Augustana? First of all, we're in the middle of this, this awful pandemic. Are you teaching everything online? I'm teaching in a hybrid format. So okay. the course that I have on theories of justice is partly in person, partly online. So we have to be able to accommodate students who have to go online for a period of time. So it, it's been a different experience. It's felt like my first year teaching again. Everything's different. Uh, all the assignments that I normally would rely upon, I have to do differently and pick out other ways of assessing student learning. But you know, students have risen to the challenge. I hope that I, for the most part, have risen to that challenge, but it's been quite a ride, definitely. Yeah, you know, everyone I've spoken to about this, both um, you know, off mic and, and for the podcast, to a person, we say the same thing, that the students have really 
risen to the challenge for all the you know supposed complaining and um, you know they really are are for the most part right doing the work and and learning it is a challenge though it's certainly different um, to to I'm doing all online so I mm-hmm. plan to do hybrid but then. I guess got cold feet as things worsened for a bit, but but in any case, I've had some really good discussions, as I know you have too. And um, so there, there is, it's, it's certainly not a lost year or a, a lost uh, another lost semester. Far from it. Yeah, I can only imagine what things would be like if we didn't have some of these tools oh. available to us. If this happened Thank even you. five years ago. Yes. Uh, no kidding. In uh, in one of my well, it's I guess in the methods course I had them look at a a, a June uh, video lecture by a historian about 1918, and you know just thinking about <laughs> right. Anyway, I, didn't, I mean, we wouldn't be we wouldn't be able to do this. Um, obviously, I don't know what we do. You know, and also, I don't know what what went on at Augustana. Um, I did some research over the summer. You know, sort of for fun, poking mm-hmm. around in student publications at Gustavus in 1918, 1919, and which are online. It's amazing. And you and searchable. There's virtually nothing about the influenza epidemic it was in Minnesota. I mean, virtually nothing. There's a little bit. And the, and the largest item I could find, the longest item, was about the impact on the football uh, schedule. <laughs> of course. Of course. <laughs> of course. That's what matters at the end. Exactly. Yes. Right. Yeah. So, well, um, Let's talk a little bit about democracy. Let's start there, uh, as I did in my introduction. Um, what, what's your what's your what's your assessment of, of the the health of democracy, uh, both in the U.S. and, and if you if you feel like it internationally uh, as well? I think it's maybe in your book where you point out democracy. You know, it's always had its critics, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. um, but but go ahead. What, where are we at? <laughs> yeah, you know, I think I I approach this from the perspective of political philosophy and in the history of political philosophy, the the arguments for democracy have always had to compete with the arguments for other regimes, other forms of government. And so I guess it's it's always been clear to me that democracy requires an argument on its behalf, that it requires defense, that it's not simply going to happen and, and drop into our laps and, and we'll be happy with it forever. Uh, and so I, I look at the current state of the world through that lens that democracy can in fact be opposed with arguments, perhaps convincing arguments to some. And that's, that's I think, really the challenge for us, that we need to understand why we have such affection for democracy. Why is it that we need to defend it? And what arguments can we bring to bear in its defense? So I think there's lots of evidence, as you noted in the intro, that there's democratic backsliding. There's some countries who are putting up, I think, quite strong arguments for a very different model of how society should be structured, maybe allowing for economic freedom, but not political liberty and political democracy. And so it, it, I think, causes us to really think through what is it about democracy that we need to make clear to the rest of the world, to our own country, as as to why it's important to us. And I think uh, teaching a political philosophy class last spring in the midst of the pandemic brought this really home for a lot of my students, that it wasn't just academic reading that they were doing, but they could see this being applied to the headlines practically every single day as we were all struggling to manage Zoom and figure out what's next. So I I think that's how I look at things right now, that democracy is always potentially in trouble and it needs to have defenders and people need to stand up for it and argue for it. That's a great, I mean, it's a great point. You know, I mean, the, the, the point about 
arguing for it. Um, <clears throat> you know, what, what does it mean to, to keep a democracy, right? Uh, or, or a democratic republic. But what that means is making a case for it. <laughs> um, and not, not, not only in practice, but in, 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 in terms of, um, well, philosophy, theory, argument. Mm -hmm. As you said, mm -hmm. I think that's a terrific point. Um, and another reason to have a liberal arts and political science education. Exactly. Um, are you, I mean, are you, and I also like the point, you know, you're, you're, you're reminding us, I think this is really important also, that the democracy is always in a way in trouble. Um, but but what about now? Are you, are you optimistic, hopeful, pessimistic about the condition, the future of democracy? I think it's cloudy. I think it really is something where you could imagine things going in a number of different directions. I think what what we need to be clear about is what we mean by democracy right. and how democracy, uh, I guess, is connected to things like the rule of law, protections of of liberalism, of individual rights to make sure. That, so the problem with democracy ever since ancient times was that you would have factionalism and a majority faction might oppress a minority faction. You would have civil war. And so you read Federalist 9 and Hamilton's talking about the need to, to not oscillate between anarchy and tyranny. And so democracy always has that danger of, of falling into one trap or another. But if you if you safeguard it enough, and this is where constitutionalism comes in, if you safeguard democracy enough, you can preserve it from falling one way or the other. And I think we're we're seeing some real challenges right now, and maybe it, it requires a, a recommitment to some of the constitutional safeguards that we've placed on democracy, rather ingeniously, I think, in some ways, uh, but we've forgotten why we did that. Yeah. Yes. And I, I completely agree with what you just said about the safeguards. I, what, where I'm at, um, from the start, I guess, from the start of, of President Trump's violation, and I don't mean this in a partisan way, it's just a fact, right? By violating whatever word you want, not following, not observing longstanding norms, the way um, so many of our safeguards are in fact, even laws, right, depend on mm -hmm. sort of some, some agreement to follow them. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I've... Um, doubted maybe more than others the resiliency of our of our institutions uh, mm -hmm. we shall see I hope I'm wrong I mean I'm not I haven't given up on that resiliency or on those safeguards but it, it seems that a lot of them have been uh, thrown by the wayside um, willfully mm -hmm. so too um, so uh, but you're helping me feel a little better Joel thank you <laughs> especially that notion that um, that democracy has always been troubled, right? And that we need to we need to make an argument for it. Uh, I think that's really important. And on the point of constitutions and legal norms and all that sort of stuff, Abraham Lincoln's speech to the Young Men's Lyceum oh, yeah. is is on point. You know, the the idea that in normal times people could be satisfied with their constitutional order. But what happens if you have someone with the, the spirit of a Napoleon, for example? Uh, are they going to be satisfied with the ordinary rewards of being a senator or a member of the House? And, and so can you account for the fact that there are sometimes these large personalities with large ambitions, and can a democratic republic, even one that's well hedged in with constitutional safeguards, can they handle it? Right. I think that's that's always an open question, even in a well-established Democratic Republic. Yes, agree. And it, it certainly isn't the first time uh, that question has come up uh, in, in an intense way. But in my lifetime, I, I can nowhere near as intensely as, as now. 
Um, not even not even during Watergate, uh, for me anyways. I think back on that. But let's talk. You know, it's funny you mentioned the, the Lincoln's uh, speech, by the way, because I'm teaching the Civil War seminar again, uh, which that may have been the last class you had with me. I can't remember. Might have been. Might have been in '96. I was there. I've been there about ten years. Anyway, and we that's certainly one of the documents we. Uh, read, but um, in, in that course, as we look at Lincoln and his his thinking uh, and how it evolved over time, especially with respect to slavery. But talk a little bit about first of all your own background and how you made it to Gustavus. Um, tell us, you know, a bit about where you grew up, how you became interested in why, why Gustavus, and and why ultimately uh, political science and history. Yeah, well, it's it's a I guess an interesting story. Um, at some level, I grew up in small towns throughout the Midwest. I went to high school in Thief River Falls, so far northwestern Minnesota. And I, I did well in school and admissions counselors came to visit. But my guidance counselor, I think, really didn't think that anything beyond maybe Fargo-Moorhead or Bemidji would be <laughs> the extent of what anyone who was a good student could could really hope for or look for. So yeah. There was an admissions counselor from Gustavus that came all the way up to Thief River. Wow. Uh, I met with her, had a campus tour, really enjoyed the campus tour. And the most important thing, I think, in my decision was that compared to St. Olaf, Gustavus had better food <laughs> on the that's campus true, visit. I think, I think yeah. that's still true. <laughs> yeah, I think it's still true. And at, at 18, that, that seemed to be really <laughs> important in the balance of considerations. But I, I remember really liking the campus tour. I spoke with professors. It just seemed like a place I could imagine myself at for four years. So, yeah, the, and the rest the rest was history. Well, quite literally, I became a history major, but I was also bio. I thought I was oh, maybe going right. to go pre-med. Yeah, I forgot about that. I forgot all about that. Yeah. And so maybe it was a combination of there being an election going on in the fall of 92. That was back in those olden days where George <laughs> Herbert Walker Bush was running for president and you had Bill Clinton playing saxophone on the Arsenio Hall show. You had Ross Perot yeah. as a spoiler, as an independent candidate. So there was a lot going on and maybe that helped shift me more towards interest in politics. But um, spring of that first year, as I was still taking chem and bio courses along with history courses, I, I remember this moment. I was in yet another lab in the afternoon and looking outside and seeing all my friends play Ultimate Frisbee. <laughs> and I thought, I don't know if I can spend all my afternoons for the rest of my life in a lab. Um, <laughs> and so in the end, I spent the rest of my time in Libraries. Yeah, exactly. And, I was say, you're in archives and libraries. <laughs> yeah. So it, maybe it was, again, speaking as an 18, 19 year old, my decision making was, was not all that clear, but I really loved my opening history classes. I distinctly remember Kevin Byrne coming dressed up as various characters oh, that yeah. first year in the American survey. Right. Uh, Don Ostrom's intro to poli sci class was really piqued my curiosity. Um, and was and Ron, yeah. Ron Christensen in poli sci? He was he was there, right? You were he was he was my advisor in political science. Okay. Yeah. And sophomore year, when I decided that I would add poli sci to history, and I was kind of dumping the bio and chem stuff, I came up to him after a class, and I said to him, "I'm looking for an advisor in the political science department." And deadpan, he responded, "Well, I hope you find him." <laughs> 
<laughs> That's good. That sounds like Ron. It does. Uh, it does. Ron, who yeah. did, um, uh, who's now passed away, sadly, but Ron, who did uh, really interesting work on political trials, and uh, which you've you've done a bit of as well in your teaching. I think we can come to that maybe later. The um, you know a couple of things. One, it's so funny. I mean, again, the 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 consistency in comments, and I suppose this is true of any school that one attends, um, where 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 you feel. It's it, it's it's you where you feel you belong. Um, mm-hmm. this sounds trite, I know, but but it's it's powerful. Everyone has commented on that. Everybody I've interviewed, I mean, students, alums, um, but that sense of you know, I can see myself here. I can picture myself here. And then the food, <laughs> because uh, some episodes ago, some recordings ago, I don't remember how many, I interviewed Steve Chelgren, who's the head of uh, dining services, among other things. And I mean, that is you know, he's just done a phenomenal job. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't even know if you, he may have been there when you were there. I can't remember. Anyway, the and that really matters, right? I mean, something like food and facilities, that's that matters a great deal. And it's also important. I told him, you know, I mean, what, what if we, what if our students weren't well nourished? I mean, how, how are they going to do the intellectual heavy lifting, right? They need to do. So I, I appreciate what you said about, about the, the food. Right. And what builds community better than eating in common? Exactly. So it's a residential liberal arts experience. So you should be gathered around a table and have discussions continue past the formal end of a class. Agree. And you, um, well, you probably remember, I mean, I think even at that, well, I know at that point, the history faculty, certainly we were eating, God knows we were eating everything we could get our hands on. I mean, we were, we were, we were into food um, and bringing, uh, Bringing food to class. And in fact, I think it was at your class, maybe I, uh, the Civil War seminar. We may have met at our home then, our then home in St. Peter, but also maybe at Patrick's, one of the local taverns. I can't remember. I remember at your home once at least and down at the Chestnut Tree Cafe. Oh, that's right. Chestnut Tree. Yeah. yeah. Which is no longer there, but uh, have River mm-hmm. Rock instead and some. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. I mean, I, you know, food and thought, right? Important. Mm-hmm. They go together. And literally, Lisa Helke, um, that's that's what she works on in philosophy. Gustavus yeah. faculty member. So you um, tell us a little bit about what you worked on for both uh Poli sign history honors. I don't remember if that was a for your history honors. You did a a paper. Tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about that. But also, I don't remember. Uh, was there a capstone you did at that point in poli sci as well? There was. Yeah, poli sci had a had a similar kind of requirement. Uh, you do an independent research paper with an advisor, and I worked with Ron Christian Christensen on that. Um, and that was about you know, U.S. constitutional uh, law and principles and how they related to the. The Declaration of Independence. Uh, the history thesis, which you advised, um, was I was I was really interested in the fact that there was this consensus view of American political thought that uh, there's this liberal tradition, a classic liberal tradition in American political thought, but that prior to the Civil War, you had almost a neo-feudal kind of thought coming out of the South and in. in writers like uh, George Fitzhugh, who would make the argument not just that slavery is a necessary evil, but that it's a positive good for right. all concerned. And I was struck by that. You know, How could someone make such an argument? That made me interested. Where does that argument come from? What's the intellectual lineage of it? And that caused me to look all the way back to Aristotle for it and, and book one of the politics and trying to, to tease out how defenders of slavery at that time made this argument that on the one hand had ancient lineage, but at the same time could be joined with an argument against Northern capitalism. Right. 
that you would have wage slavery as being worse than actual physical slavery. And you know, to kind of show how that was embedded in a tradition of argumentation that stretched all the way back to the ancient Greeks, but also selectively quoted the ancient Greeks <laughs> and, and missed a lot of the complexity in, say, Aristotle's thought. But yeah, that was that was kind of the focus of that that thesis. I, I remember it well, and I I fondly remember um, that was your senior year. Fond, I can't remember was it one semester or no? Maybe over two semesters we did it. The honors thesis. I, I think so. Over yeah, two semesters. I definitely remember um, being in my old office in the social science building, which is by the way, I don't know if you've been there. It's been renovated. It's beautiful. It used to completely be completely different. Oh my goodness, it's so much nicer. But there we were, and I remember. Um, it's one of the things I so enjoyed about about you and any any student like you the, the give and take we had as we spoke about Fitzhugh, but also about other related readings like Eric, the historian Eric Foner's work on free yeah. labor free labor ideology in the in the in the North and mm -hmm. yeah and you wrote that wonderful marvelous uh, piece didn't didn't I don't know if it changed your views of Fitzhugh. What, what do you think? Did you come to how'd you how'd you feel about Fitzhugh by the end of the process? Well, I mean, it's kind of like watching a a car wreck. You know, I mean, this is something that you know, fortunately has been excised from American thought. But there's the the interesting way in which the pro pro slavery thought also becomes a critique of of free labor, right? Uh, which again, you know, gets to the the phoner coverage you get to arguments about free labor and free soil in the north and and how even Abraham Lincoln took Fitzhugh seriously at some level you have to engage with that argument and and show why it's misguided and wrong in the parts that you you disagree with so i don't know maybe that contributed to my my notion that democracy if you really value democracy you have to stand up for it and defend it you're taking the words out of my mouth i was just about to say that because yeah and Fitzhugh i mean you know he's a, he's a you you one has to reckon with him right he's not a he's not mm -hmm. a uh a, a superficial thinker, far from it. Um, you know, you mentioned Aristotle and sort of going back there. Did you, did you take, were you a classics minor? Did you study classics at Gustavus too? No, no, I didn't. Uh, so, I, well, I did take Latin. I took Latin oh, for right. a couple of years. Well, did, I, did, I guess did, that, that counts for something, but it's yeah. not Greek. <laughs> <laughs> right. Did your, so did your, um, connection with Aristotle, your engagement with Aristotle come through political science or, Mostly. Yeah. Yeah. And it mostly early on in, in grad school, uh, realizing that I mean, you get some of that in a political science major in undergrad, but I wasn't seeking out necessarily courses, additional courses in political theory as an undergrad. That was a, a later developing interest. And I think a lot of my Actually, a lot of my interest in big ideas came from taking intellectual history type courses mm -hmm. in the history department. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, really like Tom Emmert's 19th century intellectual history course that right. opened up things beyond the American experience. Yes. So the awareness of the broader debates. Um, yeah. And, Absolutely. Yeah, but going back to the Greeks, I think was mostly a grad school experience you know, building on what I what I already knew of more recent times. Okay. Well, let's talk about grad school. So off you went to Harvard. Um, um, and I don't, I don't remember if you were, were other schools in – the mix for you, or was Harvard pretty much it from the start? I can't recall. In the end, it came down to Notre Dame and Harvard. Okay. And, you know, it was, I think it was a close call in terms of where I felt like I fit better. Um, but I, yeah, the, I think the choice was a, a good one in the end and lucked out by having some good advisors 
in what was maybe otherwise a, a difficult department to get through if you weren't kind of a self-starter and yeah. <laughs> always Sounds always pushing hard. yourself and taking advantage of opportunities because yeah. nothing's going to be handed to you. Well, I wanted to ask you about you. You you um, you work closely with was he your thesis advisor, Sandal Michael Sandal? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Michael Sandel was uh, my my thesis advisor. He was also. Yeah, sometimes there are these moments where you go back and you say, "Boy, I'm glad I made that decision rather than another." Because hmm. you're coming out. I was coming out of my second year of my master's PhD study, and the third year and beyond, you have to start making real connections to some some faculty. And one way to do that is to become their teaching assistant. And right. there was a moment where I I went up to a couple of these, you know esteemed professors and volunteered to be a teaching assistant for one of the courses they were planning for the fall of my third year and not expecting success at it. I, I was asked to be part of the teaching core for that. And so that started the process of coming to know some of these professors a little bit better and then eventually working with them. And I did a lot of teaching as a TA in grad school. And I think that that helped me gain access where it would have been more difficult otherwise. Yeah, that's good advice for any student thinking about graduate school. <laughs> the other thing yeah. is, I mean, Sandel is like he's famous in terms of his what's the course? What's the course he teaches? I don't know if he still does at Harvard, where it's just packed. Uh, yeah, tell justice. Us, yes, yeah. yes, 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 yes. Thank you. That's what I'm thinking of. Tell us a little bit about 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 him. What it was like working with him. He's a you know he's a superstar. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so coming from Gustavus, small class sizes a very intimate atmosphere for teaching and learning. I show up at, at Harvard and the graduate seminars I'm in are, are all fairly small, but then you go to, to start teaching and helping teach undergraduates and you could be in a room that holds 800 students and you have one superstar professor giving the lectures a couple times a week, but, but a lot of the actual teaching and guiding people through discussion happens in discussion sections of maybe 18 or 20 students. And so... I guess I'd had plenty of experience being in classes of that size. So I felt like I could just kind of copy what I had seen done by my Gustavus professors and try to do it somewhat, <laughs> somewhat good uh, in many, many of these discussion sections. Uh, so I, I think it was really valuable training. Uh, I, I leaned a lot on what I learned from my professors at Gustavus, frankly, you know, like how would, how would Greg Castor teach this subject? How would Ron Christensen teach this subject? And I, fortunately, I had those memories in my mind of how to go forward. Well, you know, thank you, first of all. And uh, no, Ron would say the same thing, but it's so true that, I mean, I never took an ed course. I've never taken mm -hmm. an ed course. And I still catch myself. I mean, channeling, you know, I become conscious of channeling a high school teacher who who had a profound impact on me or, or an undergraduate teacher or even a graduate uh, teacher. So I, I think what you're describing is is both true and, and, and pretty common. Um, what about, what about Sandel as a, as a mentor? I mean, how, 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 how was, what was that relationship like? Yeah. So serving as, so I ended up serving as the head teaching fellow, teaching assistant for this big class several times, uh, and overseeing, I think it was like 22 or 24 other teaching assistants. Good Lord. By the time you break down a class that big into into sections. You need a lot of personnel. Uh, but I would have access to him literally backstage because he would be in a, a kind of a waiting room, a hallway, a staircase just off this stage in front of the large uh, auditorium, Sanders Theater. 
And so there'd always be a moment or two where we'd be able to just kind of chat as we're getting ready for the time to, to go on. And those were nice moments. And then I would have the opportunity to meet with him weekly to kind of go over course administration issues. And I would say, oh, by the way, I've got this issue I'm struggling with with my my dissertation. I was hoping we could talk about it for a few minutes. But beyond that, you know, he was very generous with his time and comments and supportive all the way through. And I always felt really fortunate to have a superstar like that take the time to really focus in on a student and say, here's some advice I would give you. Yeah. Um, that's, I mean, so, that, re that, re that mentor, you know, advisor relationship at the undergraduate level too, it's just so, so important. Um, mm -hmm. The book comes out of your dissertation. Is that right? Am I remembering correctly? Yes. So let's, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about that. It's, a, it's just a great, wonderful book came out when an O was it, 2007 or yes. around then? Yeah, 2007. Yeah. And, you know, what? one of the things that I, I, you know more about this than I do, but it seems to me one of the original aspects of your work is the way you focus on literature um, mm -hmm. as, a, as a, you know, a lens through which you examine uh, issues related to democracy. So um, I'll let you t say more about the book than I will, but essentially you're, 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 you're looking in the book at uh, critics like, like Nietzsche, thinkers like Frederick Nietzsche and, and, and Thomas mm -hmm. Carlyle, critics of, of democracy's uh, ability, or they would say maybe inability to, to allow the individual to develop. It's an aesthetic critique. Is that right? I mean, more than. Yeah. Uh, so there's no good word to describe it, but I, yeah, I would say it, it's sort of an aesthetic critique okay. that, that democracy, it's critics in the 19th century. They would concede that democracy could lead to equality, could maybe lead to prosperity, uh, roast goose with applesauce yeah. for everyone, according to Thomas Carlyle. Uh, so that's all fine and good, but the critique then shifts and it says, well, you could maybe achieve all of those things, but you're not going to have culture. You're not going to have the development of the individual because there's no class above that elevates society. And so that argument is is one that most 19th century Americans just simply ignore, but it, mm -hmm. it it's a nerve with some because they wouldn't be happy simply with saying that democracy is good at making things prosperous and equal, but they would want to be able to live up to the old world standards of, of culture. Sure. And so where this argument actually gets addressed, I think most interestingly, is, is within literature, the stories that novelists are telling. And sometimes that's the most effective way of getting back against the criticism is to show how in the, the micro level, you're dealing with individuals within the context of democracy, you see them develop and flourish in a way that gets overlooked by outside critics. And in fact, that development might even be a more genuine or authentic kind of human flourishing than what might be present if you simply have a lot of aristocrats going around in carriages and art museums <laughs> and so on. <laughs> and so you're, so you're, you're quite explicitly pushing back against mm -hmm. uh, the argument advanced by people like Carlyle and, and Nietzsche. And what, what I, I'm, I know you look at, uh, you look at William Dean Howells, right? Tell us a little bit about the literature you look at and, and a little bit more about what you tease out of it. Yeah. So I, I look at William Dean Howells, uh, James Fenimore Cooper and Mark Twain. I think Twain is really 
of the three, he's he's my guy. Oh, I think if you oh, I'm, that makes me happy, Joel. I was just about to say my favorite. I used to dress up as Twain when I was when I was in high school. <laughs> <laughs> I had a, I had a white suit and a, a rocker. I, my dad wouldn't let me smoke cigars, but oh oh, keep going. Yes, I'm all ears. Yeah, I think there needs to be photographic evidence of this. <laughs> I, I would like to see <laughs> there, this. There probably um, is somewhere. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, but I think really Twain Twain in particular most explicitly takes on that critique. In fact, a, in an article, I just finished a, a couple of months ago, I look at at Twain's response to Matthew Arnold, who's yeah. one of the, the English writers who who carries on this critique of American culture that is never going to amount to anything. And Twain, I mean, he, he gets pretty vicious in his response to, to Arnold in particular. And his novel, A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, could be read as a response to Arnold that, well, you in the old world don't have much in the way of culture either. Um, so there, there's a lot going on there, uh, but you it's difficult to to respond to that critique in standard kind of argumentation other than to say, well, yes, obviously people have culture in a, in a democracy, but to be able to tell it in a story is, I think, a little bit more effective. And that's where I was, I was looking in Cooper for his understanding of how engagement with nature unleashes part of human potential that might not be there otherwise. Uh, howls in the struggle for uh, for improvement, not just a material improvement, but including material improvement. Right. That the the fact that upward mobility can, in fact, bring out certain virtues that wouldn't necessarily be called out in a more stagnant society that's hierarchical. But I, yeah, really, my yeah. love is there for Twain. Yeah, well, I, you mentioned the article, which is uh, just for for listeners. I think it's it's the one that was published in the Political Science uh, Reviewer. Is that it? Yes. The, it's called "A Discriminating Irreverence: Matthew Arnold and Mark Twain on Democratic Culture and Humor." Um, can you say a little bit more about the humor part of, of that? Right. So. I, I argue that Twain sees a certain kind of humor as being essential for elevating democracy, for blowing up all of the 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 big misconceptions, the big lies, the the way in which we might get manipulated and told false truths, and all of that. That a certain kind of humor can blow that up. Uh, and so I go through in that article looking at some of the passages where where Twain talks about that and also looking at some examples of how he accomplishes that himself. Um, and so the discriminating irreverence, not simply irreverence, that doesn't do it, but a discriminating irreverence that knows its targets and is going for the deep untruths yeah. and not just for the surface things. And this, you know, fabulous one, too, this relates, I, I, I assume, to... I can't remember if it's something you published or it was a presentation about John. Was it John Stewart and the Daily? Oh, Channel? yeah, right. I mean, is there is there is there something going on there? I mean, is similar in, in Stewart's humor. I mean, I know he's no longer. I, go ahead. I do. I do cite him. I do point out that famous moment on CNN Crossfire where yeah, Stewart appeared and told both participants, "You're you're hurting us. You're hurting America by doing this by pretending that you're." Your view is the whole truth, not simply a partial one. And I think that's, I think, survived pretty well over time as one of those moments where you're probing beneath just simply making fun of the foibles of politicians right. and so on. But getting at something deeper that is important to the, the flourishing of democracy itself. 
Yeah, I agree. I love that. I think, um, you know, Stuart would say, I've heard, we've all heard him say, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a journalist. This isn't really a news show, you know, but, but it's a, it's a serious show in that way. I mean, just mm-hmm. as you're, you're saying you're, you're, um, what was your phrase? Irreverent, uh, yeah, discriminating irreverence. Discriminating, and so that's, yeah. Irreverence. Yeah. That's a line from Twain. Yeah. Which yeah. I think Stuart, Stuart, um, and Trevor Noah too, and others, I mean, Colbert had it in his show, the original mm-hmm. show. Um, yeah. I, and you know, you're also reminding me, this relates to your point about, you know, argument and democracy, that democracy requires, I mean, there are plenty of arguments against it. We need to argue for it. Those of, who, those of us who believe in it. And maybe, you know, we, forget that one powerful, effective way of doing that is through art. I mean, through Mm -hmm. literature. Uh, And um, we ignore that at our peril, I would say. But I just love, I'm, you know, I, I, I guess I'm maybe an intellectual historian at heart in the sense that I love reading texts closely. Um, and you you are so good at that. And, and the book is just wonderful. It's a great read. I'm a fan of Howells, too. Um, mm-hmm. I used to use some of his novels in the U.S. survey course. But I urge people to read it. It's, it's a timely book. Uh, and, you know, if I were in charge, which I'm not, <laughs> I know every, every, every government official would have to read it and talk about it, every professor. Um, I wanted to ask you too. You know, another uh, another one of my favorites of of your article is um, your your articles is the one on Uncle Tom moral reasoning in Uncle Tom's cabin, and mm-hmm. I've uh, developed the last many years. I, can't, I don't know if I was teaching the course when you were there, Joel, but I've called American Lives, and I focus typically on Harry Beecher Stowe, who's the author of Uncle Tom's Cabin, Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, and then Frederick Douglass, but I. Um, tell us a little bit about your argument in that article. And also, you know, what is it, what is moral reasoning all about? <laughs> yeah. How much time do we have? Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. yeah. And you held a chair in that. So. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> so I was really fascinated with that, that book. I had not read it until I think well into my 20s. And it's one of those books that... I guess going back to Twain, it, it's a classic because everyone talks about it. And nobody's read it. Right. Um, but actually reading it, I was impressed by the complexity in terms of how it dealt with people's responses to injustice. And that if you if you read that book, you can actually create a whole typology of how people respond, reasonable or not, to evidence of injustice. And so there's some who find very creative ways to ignore it, to pretend it's not happening. You have others who respond with quietude or passivity. Uh, They find ways of justifying it. They act in ways that involve uh, violence, nonviolent resistance. And the way in which they come to those decisions, I think, really interested me. And I thought the Stowe did a a nice job throughout that, that book of talking about how real people might reason through confronting deep injustice. So what is moral reasoning all about? I think it's about how do people figure out the right thing to do when confronted with those kinds of choices. 
And that, I think that book is is very rich. It deserves to still be read yes. quite widely today. I agree. I mean, you know the the history of the book, and some of the listeners, some of our listeners do as well. Um, I mean, an absolute sensation. I had a prof once in graduate school who, you know, bad pun. It was a runaway bestseller. Of course, focuses on <laughs> runaway. I know uh, Eliza running away, but uh, running north, and then Uncle Tom heading south. So, you know, the book then get. I mean, it's an, you know, it's a, it's a masterpiece, and then it gets a mm-hmm. bad. Wrapped deservedly in, in some ways, um, certainly certainly in the 20th century, even earlier mm-hmm. by, by male literary critics. But mm-hmm. it's it's an absolutely phenomenal book in exactly the way uh, you were you were describing. Students just uh, in the American Lives class, which I'm teaching again online, uh, read it. Uh, and they're reading a biography of Stowe as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it deserves to be read and reread. Uh, and, you know, the, it's just, it's so much more complicated than the critics. And as you said, so many people haven't read it, right? Quick to criticize it, never have read it. <laughs> right. Uh, right. They've heard about it. But, you know, it is such a complicated book morally. Um, it is. Uh, you know, in all kinds of ways. You've got the, you know, the, the, the kind Shelby's, the slave mm-hmm. holders who, you know, forced to, to sell Eliza to, to pay debts, right? I mean, it's just, it's, a, and then Uncle Tom, who's, well, spoiler alert, the sort of Christ figure, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the opposite of what that phrase Uncle Tom means today mm-hmm. in some way. Mm-hmm. I mean, in important ways. Anyway, yeah, exactly. there's no way to understand that book or Stowe without putting uh, both in their historical context. Mm-hmm. Um so, yeah, I just love that article. Thank you. And so, what when you had that chair in moral reasoning? What were you, what were you doing? Were you teaching people how to reason morally? <laughs> <laughs> well, each inhabitant of that chair gets to kind of decide how they're going to use that that period of three years. And for me, I felt that I was best able to simply, well, sponsor discussions. Uh, providing readings in advance that might take two different sides on an issue and then moderate discussion. Uh, that worked, I think, pretty well. Uh, all kinds of different issues would would hold some reading groups. Um, and it, I guess it stretched me a bit because some of it stretches beyond what I'm comfortable in, in political philosophy or in history, but you know, into matters of theology. But to, to play that role of facilitator, moderator, encourager, uh, that that was kind of how I saw it. Uh, it was also during the time when, when the the Ferguson. Oh yeah, was there, yeah. Uh, you know, everything was arising with Ferguson, Michael Brown, Michael Brown and so yeah. I helped organize an event where we brought law enforcement community leaders together to talk things through with wow. students. It was a multi-person endeavor to pull this off, but I think that was maybe the most memorable thing from that period of time, where we. We took advantage of the fact that at our small liberal arts colleges, we can sit down and talk things through uh, with good faith efforts. And I think right. it was a pretty productive moment um, with a lot of people really getting into it and bearing their souls, as it were. Yeah. And that's another important point. Um, just a quick aside. I mean, this sort of stereotype about, you know, just college students or thin-skinned or yelling or screaming, unable to have, I mean, no, I mean, come to, come to our campuses, right, where these mm-hmm. these really difficult conversations are taking place, uh, both in the classroom and, and outside of the classroom. That sounds like a fantastic uh, mm-hmm. event, if I can use that that word. Um, what about what about the current chair? Uh, the the uh, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, the the Shotton Distinguished Chair. What does, does that have a particular focus? 
It, it doesn't. It, it's more just a an honorary chair, um, okay. and that's in recognition of scholarship and teaching. That's great. Congratulations on that. Yeah, exciting. The um, the other thing you've had, of course, we, we've you know, I, I don't think we maybe exchanged emails. You sent me a wonderful poster, which is still in my my office. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's about a worker. You know, be punctual, right? The worker headed yes. to the factory, but in, in German. But you had this this. Uh, it was a year-long Fulbright, or not? It was. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that, that both the the program, the Fulbright program, but also mm -hmm. your experience in, in Germany. Yeah. So I was coming up to my first sabbatical, having made it through tenure and applied to the Fulbright program, thinking this is kind of a long shot. And you know, I'm someone who studies mostly American political thoughts, and you know, I don't have a whole lot of expertise in say European politics and but I, I thought I would apply just to see what happened and didn't hear, didn't hear, didn't hear. And then eventually did hear and found out that they were going to be offering me a, this Fulbright in the Department of American and English Studies at the University of Marburg, uh, which is just north of Frankfurt, Germany. And of course that sets everything in motion. Like how can we do this? Can we have to move? We just went to a new house, so you've got to figure out what to do for that year. Uh, but it was wonderful. And I taught some courses that, again, maybe speak to my liberal arts training, that it, these weren't things that necessarily I would have taught at Augustana. But because yeah, I think the liberal arts training enables you to go beyond your core specialty with some ease. Yes. Even if you aren't an expert, you can stretch into it a bit. So I, they wanted me to teach about America. That, that was the thing that maybe I hadn't really thought about in advance, was that if I'm going to a country like Germany, I'm there as the the person from the far country who can teach from the from my own experience uh, about my own country and my own politics and, and history. So I taught a course on the American frontier, which was oh, wow. really fascinating yeah. to do. Uh, taught an intro to American politics, taught a course on American politics and literature. So kind of, it really was an American studies type of position where it wasn't just politics, but a wide variety of things. And then as a Fulbright scholar, uh, the American embassy and consulate in the consulate in Frankfurt would schedule me to give talks throughout the country That's great. on American issues. So that was right when the 2010 election was going on. Oh, yeah. So the Tea Party right. was rising up. It was still first couple of years of President Obama's term. Uh, so that, that was fascinating to be able to go to all these civic groups and organizations and, and talk to them and field their questions. Yeah. How many, um, so were you, was it all under the equivalent? I don't know if they, you, undergraduates or graduate students or both you were teaching? It was both. Okay. Yeah, it was both, uh, mostly undergrads, but they were older, on the older side. I mean, the Fulbright program is just such a fantastic program. Um, and w w were you able to do some research as well, or was it strictly teaching, mostly teaching? I did do some writing, but it was pretty heavy on the teaching yeah. and the traveling. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Between the two, uh, it was balanced much more towards that than towards just time for scholarship. Yeah. Well, anyway, congratulations. Um, I know you had a blast. And, and um, you know, as you say, it's funny about the liberal. I was just sort of thinking somewhat eh, cynically, but, some, you know, the liberal arts, yeah, it prepares us to fake it really well. <laughs> you, you, you said you said it better, a stretch, or a stretch. Um, but yeah. it is one thing I love about teaching at a place like Gustavus. I've loved that. I didn't attend such a school. I attended a, as you know, a big state university, Northern mm -hmm. Illinois University in DeKalb, and then Boston University, huge pride for my PhD. But I love, uh, you know, school like Augustana and 
Right. These were sister schools, really, both uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, part of the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, and not not evangelical in the way some people might think, but Lutheran higher ed, and right. uh, the way any good liberal arts college lets both the professors and the students stretch and experiment mm-hmm. and grow. Uh, I, I really love that, value that so much. The mm-hmm. um, other thing I wanted to ask you about because I am just. I, I can't stop reading enough and thinking I need I need to stop <laughs> about the damn electoral college. Um, <laughs> and I saw that you hosted. Boy, I wish I had been able to be there. You'd hosted. I think it's a debate, right, back uh, on on your campus. Um, what do you What are your thoughts about the electoral college? Uh, yeah. Yeah, so that was a debate actually sponsored by the math club on campus. Oh, so when you get invited to, to do something for the math club, that's uh, great. yeah, watch out. Um, There's some liberal arts in action, by the way. That's perfect. Yeah, right, right. You know, I I tend to be okay with the Electoral College based on the fact that it does serve as a kind of compromise balance between the large states and small states. The, you know, the small states get their way in the Senate, the large states get their way in the House, and then how do we pick a president? Well, if you go back to the records in the Philadelphia Convention, it was anyone's guess. There were all kinds of things proposed. Maybe the state governor should pick the president. Maybe the state legislature should pick the president. Maybe the Congress should pick the president. Hmm. So there were you know, downsides with all of the other, other possibilities that were raised. And this complicated beast, the Electoral College, is a way of satisfying all parties to some extent. Mm. Now, I mean, it still means that California, New York is going to have a hugely outsized influence in picking the president, but little Wyoming is going to have at least a little bit of say. <laughs> and yeah, so not not every vote counts the same in picking the president. Right. And that's just, that's just something that is that's a feature, not a not a bug. And so that's right. Yeah, you get these weird outcomes where the popular vote goes one way and the electoral vote goes the other way. Right. And that's that's difficult. That's wrenching. Yeah, I mean, what drives me crazy about it is, I mean, you again know more than I do, but I can't think of is that there's not another democracy where the leader is elected this way, right? Where you're, you're not elected by, you're not elected by the popular vote, right? You can, you can win the popular vote. And of course that's mm-hmm. happened and, and lose yeah. <laughs> and right. the election, <laughs> which seems, yeah. which seems undemocratic, anti-democratic. I don't know. Um, but, but we've got it. We've got it. I know there's this attempt to get around it by the states. I can't remember what that's called and how many states have to agree to it, but, um, where they, what award the electors to the, how does that work to the winner? I think of the, of the popular vote, the overall yeah. popular vote, but it's a funny, and you know, what you said is absolutely right about the Philadelphia convention. I mean, it's just a, there's not a whole lot of I mean, there's some discussion and debate, of course, about it, but it's it's sort of, you know, well, let's just do it this way. Let's do it this way. And, and, and we live with it still. I was just curious because I'm reading um, uh, the New York Times journalist Jesse Wegman's book on it, which is decidedly against it. And uh, there's a historian named, you may know, Alexander Kazar, who's written a lot on mm-hmm. the history of voting in this country. He has a new book out about the uh, Electoral College, which I haven't read yet. I've got it. But I've just been obsessing about it lately. Um, you know, maybe, maybe it goes back to at least 2000, I guess, for me. You know, yeah. What happened, Bush v. Gore. Um, thank you. What about making a case for not only the liberal arts, which I know you can make, mm-hmm. But for uh, your your discipline or field in particular, I mean, why study 
government and international affairs or what at Gustavus is called political science? Why? It's a great question. Um, personally, I was interested in history ever since I was a little kid. And the parts in any history book that I read that dealt with politics, I would skip over because I found them boring. And it wasn't until college that I actually discovered that the political questions were really fascinating and they concerned everyone. That's what makes them political. They are society-wide questions. And there was a it was thrilling to actually realize that you could engage with those kinds of questions and make a difference and see that implemented into reality if everything goes well. And so I think I became more and more fascinated with that. And I try to convey that to my students as well, that everything around them touches politics in some way has been formed by political decisions. The fact that when they enter into an Augustana or Gustavus, the requirements for graduation are the result of decisions of those people beyond this room, that someone made this decision that you have to take a certain number of English classes or math classes or, or whatever. And so wouldn't you want to be a part of that level of decision-making and to understand how it works? So I think there's so many reasons why you might want to be studying political science, just become a better citizen, a more informed person in this world. But there's also the notion that it it engages with big picture questions that can affect massive numbers of people. That, that, that was really something that inspired me. And to know something about history is vital to be a good participant in any kind of political debate. So I saw the two fields as working very closely together. Yeah. And, you know, I'm thinking as you're speaking, um, if we can't escape history, we, we can't escape politics either. I mean, right. politics understood understood broadly as decisions made by some that influence everybody, right, in one way, right. one way or another. Um, I love that. Thank you. And one last question. Have you seen Hamilton either on on television or the Disney? Or, or I not? saw it on television. Yeah, I did. I saw it when it was broadcast. What do you th What do you think of Hamilton? I know you did some work on the you know anti federalist way back yeah. then. Um, <laughs> the op the opponents of the Constitution. Do, do you use it in class at all, or what? What, what are your thoughts? You know, I don't. I make occasional references to it. Yeah. I, yeah. But yeah, no. It's a it's a fantastic blend of of music and storytelling. It's very favorable to Hamilton. Definitely. I might take issue with some of the interpretation of Hamilton right. himself, but yeah, boy, I love you can't it. take issue with, with yeah. the, the way the story is told. And yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I love it. I absolutely love it. Um, I don't, I guess I, I play some of the, some of the, look, it's helped me get, it's helped me get through the whole, you know, Jefferson, <laughs> the, the Jeffersonian period. <laughs> I mean, I just, I just play some songs, right. Instead of trying to watch it. But the other thing is, as you say, it's, it's favorable. And there's the, you may have seen it too, a recent um, mm -hmm. paper published by, I think it's uh, uh, an, a reenactor at, at the Hamilton house in New York uh, about, about how he bought in, so mm -hmm. plays. he's not quite the abolitionist he's made out to be in Ron Chernow's book, which I mm -hmm. enjoyed, uh, but uh, yeah. had my doubts about that, and certainly not the abolitionist he's made out to be in uh, in the musical. But nonetheless, it's a great musical. <laughs> it sure is. It sure is. <laughs> I love it. So this has been so much fun. Thank you so much. Um, you know, your work is just so interesting and timely and important, and we need to get you. It's occurring to me. You haven't, if you ever come back to Gustavus to give a talk, we need to do that. I don't know. Yeah, I haven't. Yeah, haven't yet. You consider yourself invited. Um, yeah. and we'll, we'll, we want to well, do it. You. We want to do it in person, though. So um, that would be fun. Yeah. 
Although this is great too. Yeah, this is great. I, I, I love this. I, I just love it's so good to talk to you about ideas and, um, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I know we exchange emails now and then. And by the way, I'm so glad you went to Harvard because then I could go back to Boston with, with Kate and see you there. And um, that's right. Yeah, that's I right. Mean, South Bend, with all due respect, but you know, Cambridge. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Yeah, you miss going back there. Yeah, Definitely. that was fun. Yeah. So, Joel, it's awesome. It's great to talk to you. So proud of all that you've done and are doing. Um, best of luck with all your work uh, beyond the classroom. I know, and uh, hopefully, we'll all get through this. Uh, awful pandemic sooner rather than later. That's right. One way or the other. Thank you, Greg. This has been a lot of fun. My pleasure, Joel. Take good care. You too. All right. Bye-bye.